Thank you, Ben. I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open at Genesis 3 as we work through the passage today. And we're going to be taking an extended look at the consequences of sin that is committed by Eve and Adam. And as wonderfully my own daughter asks, how does that now mean a consequence for all of us? So we're going to be delving into that uh, today. And last week we covered the first seven verses of the chapter, seeing how Eve was tempted to sin and how Adam willfully sinned in partaking of the fruit. We learned that when you engage with any form of temptation, even just dipping your toe into that temptation, you are marked on the road to sin. To combat these temptations that come our way, we learned that we are to trust in the unfailing word of God as the final authority over all matters. For we know John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is the Word of God, if trusted and obeyed, that keeps the heart for Christ and away from the traps of temptation. As we continue in our narrative today, still focusing on the fall of mankind all the way through to the end of the chapter, we enter into a section focused on the consequences of verses 1 through 7. So verses 1 through 7 is the action, and from 8 through 24 is the consequence of those actions. Every decision has an outcome. The decision of Eve and Adam to sin brings serious consequences, not just practically, but spiritually. And to help us understand the seriousness, we're going to work our way through three specific curses or three brackets of curses. The complexities of each one and what they now mean to us today. And as we do so, I want you to keep in mind this one simple phrase. When in despair there is always hope. When in despair, there is always hope. What I'm going to show today is that you just simply need to know where to look when you are in despair to find the hope. And so let's turn our attention back to verse 8, and let me read it once again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now we're introduced to an awe-inspiring piece of information. Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden. Uh, the Hebrew term for walking used here in verse 8 is hippale, which suggests a regular habit of walking. It implies that God would regularly come to the Garden of Eden in some form of pre-incarnate Christ to spend fellowship with Adam and Eve. Isn't that incredible? We've seen that God had conversation within himself, the triune God, and now we're seeing that God comes to the garden and walks with his creation, Adam and Eve. Now, it's a little tricky to date such a moment because it would need to happen after day seven when everything was complete and the Lord had rested. But considering the command to multiply, which hasn't yet occurred, we have no notice here that Eve is pregnant, no children yet have arrived, it could be just a few simple weeks after creation. A bit tricky to date exactly when, but we know it's after the seven days of creation. What is clear is that the sound of God walking 
no longer brought them joy. The emphasis here is not on the fellowship. Oh, here comes God. We have some bountiful fellowship hiding our way. Instead, it's on the coming judgment of God. The trees that were once a wonderful place to view and to pick fruit from now act as hiding places. For Adam and Eve felt shame over their nakedness, but ultimately over the sin they had committed. Although it was Eve who first ate of the fruit, it was Adam that God called for. It was with Adam that God had made a covenant. It was therefore Adam who would have to take responsibility for their actions. Atkinson, in his commentary on Genesis, sums up the interaction between God and Adam, I think, quite in a helpful way, quite simple, quite to the point. And this is what he says. Adam, where are you? I'm naked, rebellious, ashamed, guilty, shifting blame, afraid, and hiding between the trees. Do you see the devastating consequences of sin? Adam, here's all the animals, name them, and Adam could do it. Adam, here is Eve, your wife. What joy, finally, flesh of my flesh, bone of bones. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding between the trees. Sin has utterly destroyed peace, and it's removed true fellowship with God. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see that God knows what has happened? He knew before even he came to walk in the garden. He knew because you can see it and he's questioning, can't you? Have you eaten off the tree? God knew what had happened. Adam and Eve would have felt no shame over their nakedness if they had not eaten off this tree. And so God asked them a direct question. Did you eat off the tree? Did you break the covenant that we had agreed? And notice once again, this question is directed to Adam, the covenant representative. The question was not about establishing details, though. God already knows all the details. Rather, it was an opportunity for Adam to confess and repent from the sin that he had committed. Would the following verses, I wonder, be different if Adam said, yes, we did. I'm sorry. I wonder how things would have been different if he took the opportunity to repent and confess his sin. Problem is, we will never know because that opportunity went to blame shifting. The behavior of blame shifting is now a common mechanism of avoiding responsibility. You begin to point the finger at anything or anyone else because you refuse to take responsibility. If you have kids, you know this happens. You know, if you have dogs, you know this happens. Do you know? Who ate this? Everyone starts looking shifty in the house. Notice Adam blames Eve for she gave the fruit. It's her fault that we've sinned. He doesn't confess. He blames someone else. But look a little bit closer, and I think this is astounding. Adam blames God 
for his actions. For it was God's that gave Adam the woman. Incredible, isn't it, that Adam had an opportunity before God to confess and repent from his sins, and he actually goes, hang on, it's your fault. The Lord then turns to Eve again. An opportunity is given to confess and repent to Eve. However, the pattern of blaming has set in, and the woman blames the serpent. The sinful pattern of following one another's actions has now moved into avoiding responsibility at all costs. And isn't that true today? The sin of blame shifting still occurs on a regular basis because we don't want to take responsibility for our own actions. Over the years of being a pastor, I think this one thing is true, that when people are confronted with their sin, often the first thing they do is blame shift, refusing to take responsibility over their actions. You bring out the worst in me. This situation caused me to do it. I did it because of this. It's always a blame, always a reason. Yet what we see here is that is the negative outcome when given an opportunity to confess and repent. To blame shift simply is sin. It's at this moment when no one would take responsibility, when it was evident that neither the man or the woman would confess and repent from their sin, that God will go and pronounce judgment on the serpent, on the earth, on man, and on woman. The actions of Adam and Eve have impacted their relationship with God and God's relationship with them because they would refuse to obey God and worse still, they would refuse to confess and repent from their sin. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent is cursed. And notice this, above all beasts and livestock. Uh, there's two things I want you to take from this, and this is something that really jumped out of me uh, this week. All animals are cursed, but the serpent is cursed above them. Everything that is now living is tarnished with this curse, which ultimately means they will be decaying until they're ultimately destroyed. Yet the serpent is cursed even more as a reminder of the fall, and it would have a humiliating existence. Now, you could take this verse literally, showing that the serpent somehow had arms and legs and they were removed and now it would slide on its belly. I think there is merit in taking it literally. I think you can also take it as a picture of humiliation. It would live amongst the dust of the ground, never gaining anything and any height, any power, any control in life. I think either you take it literally or you take it as a picture. What is clear is the serpent has had all power stripped away from it. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, through the serpent, sought to bring disobedience and dissatisfaction to the life of mankind. And in so doing, he would seek to rise to a position where mankind would honor Satan rather than God. Again, this narcissistic thought process 
that Lucifer, now Satan, could become like God. And to some extent, Satan succeeded. Disobedience was now going to be a way of life. And to some extent, that meant that Satan had some form of influence over mankind. But consider uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has become like a God in the sense with a small g of this world because he blinds people from what God has for them, the light that God shines. Isn't this what Satan did with Eve? Blinded her from the true words of God, so she began to doubt those words. However, Satan has not fully succeeded, for it's God that is still very much in control. Notice this. If you're in a position of placing judgment on someone, then you're in a position that is higher than they are. So God is higher than the serpent, than Satan, as he pronounces judgment. God will put enmity, which simply means hostility, between the woman and Satan. Although Eve sinned, her loyalty would not be for Satan. He had not won an ally in Eve. Further to this, God would put hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of Eve. Although the offspring of Satan will cause damage to the offspring of Eve, it will be nothing like the victory that the offspring of Eve would have over the offspring of Satan. If you're a little bit lost, I'm sorry about that. There's a lot of offsprings in there. But now verse 15, this is what we're honing in on. Verse 15 is known as the Protoevangelium, which is the first gospel or the first good news. It was the first good news after sin. It promised victory of the Redeemer. It looks ahead to a time where although there'll be a period of perceived victory, the Redeemer would crush Satan and all his power would be like dust. Now, you can take the content of this first good news in two ways. Firstly, it speaks of the children of Satan and God. Therefore, the Antichrist, who will destroy all of creation, and the Christ, being the Son of God, who is victorious through the cross of Christ. It is Jesus who would bruise the head of Satan, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But the second way you could take it is that people will be divided into two camps. Those who are disobedient and are against God and believers who are faithful to God. As I've said in many services, there is only ever two camps, those who are for God and those who are against God. If you are for God, you're on the side of Christ. If you're against God, you're on the side of Satan and the Antichrist. And what we see here is although Satan has won in the sense of causing Eve and Adam to sin, there is no ally, there is no authority, there is no power, because ultimately God has the long-term plan of Christ Jesus. Verse 16, to the women he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be toward or contrary, and we'll come on to that in a minute, to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
Having cursed the serpent, God then turns to Eve to pronounce judgment upon her. And there's a twofold curse that's placed on women. The first is that childbearing will now be extremely painful. It will act as a reminder of the dreadful impact of sin on all those born into this world. The mandate from God to go forth and multiply will now be a difficult and painful process. And this is well before the times of modern medicine and epidurals. It would be painful to have children. Yes, children will be a blessing, but now each child is going to be marked by sin, and the pain is the reminder of that sin. At Romans 5.12, Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death passed unto all men, for that all sinned. Each new life will now not only be marked by sin, but by the curse of death upon their life. And the picture of that would be the pain through childbearing. The second part of the curse, I believe, is where a lot of debate and to some extent controversy occurs. And so I'm going to try and break it down a little bit and try and show you what might be being said here. The word desire in verse 16 comes from the Hebrew word teshuka, meaning to be drawn to, to control, or to conquer. If we jump forward to Genesis 4-7, we see teshuka used there. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In Genesis 4-7, we're talking about the story of Cain and Abel. Sin's desire was to conquer Cain. It crouched at the door seeking to control Cain. And when we go back to Genesis 3 verse 16, where we're kind of camping out for a little bit, we can then phrase this verse as Eve's wanting, desire, is to control, to conquer, to be drawn to her husband. The debate comes with this word, toward, or the word contrary, in verse 16. In many translations, it is written that the woman's desire is for or is toward her husband. The problem comes when we try to understand this word for or toward, or this word contrary in some translations, and to try and figure out what it's getting at. But I want you to remember this. We're hearing a curse. This is not a positive thing. This is a curse being pronounced on women. Therefore, the context of the words around it, the theme of chapter 3 and the verse that we're in is a negative tone, okay? That's something we need to remember here, that verse 16 is a negative tone. This is a curse, not a positive. Therefore, we could say that woman is seeking to conquer her husband or control her husband in a negative manner. If you take the word contrary, as here in some of the ESV translations, we could say that the woman's desire to conquer and control is the opposite to what is sought in a marriage. If you take the word for in some of your translations, you need to take that word for in a negative sense. This is a curse. So how could it be that woman has a negative desire for her husband? Well, it reflects the sin that's committed by women. As she sought to act contrary to the command of God, giving in to her desires to eat of the fruit, so it will now be reflected in her marriage. 
She would have to fight against her desires and battle against the sin that is now in her life. This disharmony in marriage extends into now how man will also act, making the marriage a battlefield. Because man will now wrongfully seek to rule over women and her desires in an authoritarian manner. Again, notice these are curses. There is a negative tone here. Woman, for some form of way, is going to go against her husband in a contrary manner, in a manner that is somehow for but not quite for her husband. And man is now going to be authoritarian over woman. Now, I'll come on to the male perspective in a few moments. But when it comes to men and women, there are basically four schools of thought. There is feminism which at its core is about equality between men and women, yet it often stretches into a negative manner against men. There's egalitarian, which is men and women are equal in the eyes of God and are active in the same roles. There's complementarian, that men and women are equal, yet they have differing roles by design of God. Then there's patriarchy, the viewpoint that men should rule over women in every aspect of life. I would be bold enough to say that verse 16, the curse that God pronounces, points to both feminism and patriarchy in this verse. Woman is seeking to control to the detriment of man, and man is seeking to rule over every aspect to the detriment of woman. So to be clear, this is the curse. It is not what God desires, nor should it be what we desire. Feminism and patriarchy are the extremes that are produced by the curse. Now, as pointed out last week, we saw in Genesis 2 that both men and women are made in the image of God, and both are blessed by God, and therefore they are equal. Yet we also see differing roles in Genesis 2. Adam is the estate manager, naming all the animals. Eve is the companion the help, the assistant, the support. And to be clear, as I say that, there'll be some that are already thinking in their minds to look down on either one of those roles. But both are needed. Both should be seen as important because without both roles, there is incompleteness, as we learn in Genesis 2, and that incompleteness continues, and therefore God's creation could not be called very good because why is incompleteness not good? Because God declared it as not good. Now, this is the complementarian view, that God made man and woman equal, yet complementary to bring about completeness. Now, for those that would argue the egalitarianism view, that there is no differing roles, I would simply ask this, why create Eve as different from Adam, rather than create just another Adam, a clone, if you will? In other words, if there are no differing roles, then we're complete in ourselves And therefore, we can argue against incompleteness found in chapter 2, and God defined that as not good. Now, I could spend a long time on this, and we do need to go into verse 17 and see how man is cursed. So, let me just sum it up in a bold and, and very clear statement. Feminism and patriarchy are the sinful extremes that are cursed egalitarianism is not seen in creation in Genesis 2, leaving us with the fourth point, which is complementarianism. 
Not a harsh overrule, and we'll come on to that, but a loving completeness of man and woman together. So with that in mind, it's time to make sure we see the curse on man. Let's go into verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The full force of the curse coming from God is now placed on the shoulders of Adam. Remember, the life and death covenant was between God and Adam. Therefore, it's Adam that has to bear the brunt of the consequence. Simply, life for Adam would be horrendous. The ground is cursed. So we'll fight against Adam as he works the ground. Back in the day when I was a student, I worked on an organic farm. Um, this will make Ben chuckle because I have some interesting jobs in my history. Uh, part of working on an organic farm is that you cannot use pesticides. So to get rid of weeds, you had to walk up and down the fields and hand pick the weeds out. You would walk for hours upon hours upon hours picking out weeds. And if you didn't pick enough, the grain was rejected. So you had to pick them all up. Why? Because the ground was fighting back. Why? Because that's the curse in Genesis 3. It will not produce goodness. Instead, it will produce thorns and thistles. Instead of bountiful fruits, Adam would have to work a field to produce food for himself. It would be hard work. It would be toil. It would bring minimal joy. Work was no longer a privilege granted by God. It was a necessity to survive. And most striking of all is physical death would now occur. Mankind would be cursed to die returning to the dust of the ground where God had made Adam. And when you combine all this together, you have sorrow over the futility of life, you have pain and suffering, you have destruction of life, and you have death. That is the curse placed on Adam's shoulders. Before we move into verse 20, I just want to just take a, a little kind of speculative moment, okay? I want to be very clear. This is a speculative moment. This is just thinking out loud. So don't place this on a solid foundation. Place this in your mind as just something to think about. If the thorns that would destroy creation have an eternal significance, I wonder if they are linked to the thorns that were made into a crown that were placed on the head of Jesus as he died on the cross. There might be no connection, but do you see that picture? The curse in Genesis 3, now placed on the head of Jesus as he seeks to die to set us free. It might come to nothing, but I think that's a wonderful picture just to think upon how God has taken the curse that we read here in Genesis 3 and has destroyed it on the cross of Christ. Verse 20. The man called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. We have another tricky verse. Did Adam name Eve because he had faith that through Eve the Lord God would bring forth a people, a nation, a savior? Possibly. 
Or did he name Eve, as he named the animals, to act upon his perceived rule and authority? God named Adam. Adam named the animals. Adam names Eve. Simply don't know why he names Eve this. It might be a mixture of both, faith and rule. It might be just purely faith. It might be just purely rule. We don't know. But after this naming ceremony, God made clothing through the skins of animals meaning death, notice this, death to the ones Adam was charged to care for, to cover the shame and sin of Adam and Eve. We can take this as an early hint to the sacrificial system and the grace in which God seeks to provide means for us to have our shame and our guilt dealt with. Verse 21, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat of and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to walk the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now if you're like me, you're boiling feel free to use things as a fan to uh, keep cool because we're nearing the end of our passage. But on the surface, these verses seem to bring an end to the whole ordeal. However, I want us to see the stunning reality of these verses. Notice how God cuts himself off in conversation with the Spirit and with Christ. Let me just read it and let me build it in such a way that might have occurred so you can see the cutoff. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And cuts himself off. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden. There was real danger. If Adam and Eve would sin again and eat of the tree of life, they would become eternal. They would be immortal. Yet they would be eternal in their sin. How would God save mankind from their sin if they've become eternal sinful beings? It was a matter of urgency to get them out of the Garden of Eden. And you get this sense of urgency as the conversations cut off as God drives them out from the Garden. To further protect them, God placed a cherubim often tasked to guard the throne of God at the Garden Gate with a flaming sword to ensure they would never enter this Garden again. Isn't that a stunning reality? We've seen that God speaks within the triune God nature. Isn't that a stunning reality that we've seen that God walks in the Garden of Eden? And now, God can cut himself off in conversation to get to the rub of the matter. Well, with such wonderful chapters in 1 and 2, chapter 3 is quite a stark contrast, isn't it, of what sin produces. It brings decay it brings pain, it brings suffering, it brings discord, it brings disharmony, and it brings death. So how do we conclude on that? Where do we go from here? Genesis 1 and 2 is ruined by sin, and without something changing, we are very much in the same place. Let me just bring you two things to conclude our time together. The first is this, we should mourn over sin hating its very existence. Romans 12, 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor or hate what is evil, hold fast 
to what is good. Do you see that? We are to hate what is evil. To hate what is evil is to want no part in it, to avoid it at all costs, to run away from the line of sin so we never get close to partaking. And remember what I said last week? We draw the line and we often try to get as close to the line of sin as possible. No, to hate sin is to get as far away from the line as possible. We're to be above reproach in all aspects of our life for it reflects our conviction to not have our lives marked by the sin that we're entrapped by. Yet all too often, we refuse to take responsibility for our sinful actions, thoughts, or words. Sure, we might have half-hearted apologies, or even we'll try a little bit better next time. But few have a deep conviction to hate what is evil. A classic, I think, in a church circumstance is when we do something really horrible to one another, and then we back it up with, but I'll continue to pray for you. Or you're still my brother or sister in Christ. Let me trample all over you. And let me just feign a smile and say we're still a brother and sister in Christ. That is not hatred of sin and evil. That is manipulation to get our own way. It is sin that destroys our relationship. It is sin that destroyed the ground. It is sin that destroyed creation. And it's sin that is destroying our relationship with God. Therefore, it is sin with deep conviction we are to hate and to avoid at all costs. So I would encourage you, by the authority of Scripture, to take no part in sin. Further to not taking part, hate even the slightest existence of it. I want to be very, very clear here. At no point have we said, hate the person. You're not to do that. We're to love one another. But we are to, with deep conviction, hate what is evil. Why? Because it brings destruction. In our resignation letter a few weeks ago, it feels like a long time now. One of the things I said is that my prayer, and it will continue to be my prayer for LBC, is that you would not let the devil have a single foothold in the church. Not a single one. Because if one is taken, then so does the second, the third, and the fourth, and things become destroyed. We are to cling to what is good, which is the good shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, because it is only in him we see the bountiful blessings that we were meant to have from Genesis 1 and 2. Take no part in sin. Don't get close to it. Don't respond to it. Don't be in it. Don't want it. Don't desire it. Walk away from sin. The second thing is, do you remember how I started? When in despair, there is hope. There is hope. I'm going to conclude by reading an extended quote from Colin Smith. Colin Smith is a Scottish pastor now serving in the States, and he's put together a wonderful, wonderful 50-part walkthrough of the whole of Scripture. And on this part, when he's talking about the curses, this is what he wrote, and I think this is an incredible picture, and it helps us think about those thorns, thorns that were evil placed on our Lord's head. Think about this. It's on the screen, but I doubt anyone will read it. Christ came from heaven, not only to overcome the power of evil, 
but also to open up a way back into paradise for us. Try to imagine yourself standing outside the paradise of God, looking back at the cherubim with the flaming sword of judgment. As you look, someone comes out of the presence of God and stands with you. Then he turns and advances towards the flaming sword. You cringe as you watch. The flaming sword is flashing back and forth, and you can see what will happen to him when he gets there. But he keeps walking forward steadily, relentlessly. The sword strikes him and kills him. It breaks his body. But in breaking his body, the sword itself is broken and lies shattered on the ground by his death a way back into the presence and blessing of God is open to you. Isn't that a wonderful picture of what our Lord Jesus has done for us? In John 14, 6, we're told that Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is only through Jesus we can be forgiven, brought into new life, and experience the presence of God. We are to come to Jesus, for in him the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 can be found again. Folks, this is what we battle against. This is our everyday battle as a Christian. Battling the curses that have been pronounced upon our head. And the only way to win, the only way, is to let the Lord Jesus Christ do the battling for you. Because guess what? He's already won. He's already won. I don't know what you have on Monday morning. I don't have a clue what's coming in your week ahead. But let me say this. There is not a single temptation or sin or curse that Christ has not already battled and not already won. So don't go into Monday morning with heavy hearts because of sin that keeps going around your heart and mind. Don't go into this week panicked and defeated. Go into this week as those that walk behind the one who let the flaming sword take his life so that we can walk right into paradise. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot in that passage. There's a lot there that sparks controversy and debate and thoughts and discussions and lots of books written, lots of sermons preached. There's a simple reality, Father, that we recognize the curses that are placed on mankind because of disobedience and sin. We recognize that we will battle against these curses for the rest of our earthly lives. And so, Father, with deep conviction, we pray that you place in our heart a hatred of evil and you place in our heart a desire to cling to what is good, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to take on that flaming sword of judgment, opening the journey, the way to the presence and peace of God. Father, I pray for everyone that's here today, those listening online and part of our online ministry, that they would walk into this week with their heads held high, not because in themselves they can achieve anything, but because they stand on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So not a sin, not a temptation, not a curse can overcome them because we already have victory in Jesus Christ. 
And Father, in a few moments, we're going to be singing a song that talks about where our hope is built. Let this be our hope, that we live because Jesus Christ died. And so we pray this in your blessed name. Amen.